find yourself living in a shotgun shack. And you may find yourself in another part of the world. And you may find yourself behind the wheel of a large automobile. And you may find yourself in a beautiful house with a beautiful wife. And you may ask yourself, well, how did I get here? Letting the days go by, letting the water hold me down, letting the days go by, water flowing underground, into the blue again, after the money's gone, once in a lifetime, water flowing underground. And you may ask yourself, how do I work this? And you may ask yourself, where is that large automobile? Hey, how's it? Uh, ho, 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 and everybody. This is Chris. Welcome to day four of Mary X Lapsed, uh, where... If you're listening in real time, well, this episode is hitting on Christmas Eve. So uh, if you are listening in real time, I very much appreciate it. I know it's probably a pretty busy, hectic day. So it uh, means a lot to me that you'd uh, make some time to uh, spend with me. So thank you. Um, now, if you are listening in real time, I'm probably in the kitchen right now. I'm working on a big feast here. I'm, I allow myself two big meals during the uh the year. Uh, one is Thanksgiving, the other is Christmas Eve. have a little tradition around here where there's, there's an Italian tradition called the Feast of the Seven Fishes. Unfortunately, I don't do seafood. I don't eat fish, so uh, I'll have fish sticks and I'll have tuna, but uh, other than that, I don't, I don't do fish. So I have something that I call the Feast of the Seven Dishes, which is kind of exactly what it sounds like. It's a uh, Seven courses that I cook uh, every Christmas Eve for uh, for friends and family and stuff. And while it'll be a bit of a smaller gathering this time for, you know, the reasons we all know of, uh, I still uh, didn't want to let it go by. So I guess with fewer people coming over, it'll just be uh, more food I'm sending home with people so I don't have it in the fridge as a temptation for the next uh, week and a half. So... That's where I am, if you're listening to this in uh, real time. But enough of that, let's get to the reason why we're here today, and it is to discuss a pretty horrible comic book, if I'm being honest here. Um, We're going to be taking a look at X-Men, Volume 2, number 109. This had a February 2001 cover date. The main story is called Ceremonies, and it's written by Chris Claremont. This is part of the, uh, the return of Chris Claremont. This is actually the end of the return of Chris Claremont to the uh, main two books. Uh, pencils, Tom Derenick, inks, Rick Ketchum, and Norm Rapband. Uh, colors are by Liquid, Letters, Richard Stockings, and Comic Crafts, Seda Tamafante. Edits, Pete Franco, Mark Powers, and Joe Quesada. This is very early in the Gemis and Quesada uh, regime, I suppose we could say. Now, this had a cover price of $3.50, which... Sounds like a lot for a turn-of-the-century-era book, and uh, yeah, it is a lot, but uh, there's a reason for that, and that is because this is part of a line of books that Marvel was putting out around the time called 100-Page Giant, which featured a new story and then two or three reprints, Uh, which, I mean, for the time, you know, the internet wasn't quite what it is today, and the availability of digital comics wasn't quite as plentiful as it is today, uh, both legally and uh, other ways. So getting reprints was uh, you know, the only way you'd see some of these older stories. Uh, we weren't quite so flushed with uh, collected editions back then either. So for a lot of folks, this is as good as it's going to get. 
Now, we could talk about all four of the, ish- the stories that are involved in this issue, but as luck would have it, we've already talked about the back three, and uh, this was not planned. Because had it been planned, my week of uh, digging through long boxes would have been... Uh, well, I wouldn't have had to, because I would have just pulled them all from this very issue. So this was kind of a surprise to me. Now, let's get into the story. And first, as we've been doing for the past few episodes, we're going to look at the cover. And we actually get a Christmassy cover here. It looks like a Polaroid picture of a Storm, Wolverine, Gambit, Colossus, Psylocke, and I'm going to assume Rogue. Though if it is Rogue, it's a wildly generic take on her. Uh, it's drawn by Lionel Francis Yu, who we are all familiar with from our Dawn of X reading. Now, all the characters here except Gambit are wearing Santa hats, and Colossus is carrying an already decorated Christmas tree over his left shoulder. It's even less interesting than I'm making it sound. Um, it's in black and white, and the only things in color are the red Santa hats and uh, Betsy's weird crimson dawn marking on her face. But, you know, it is a Christmas cover, so we will allow it. Now let's open up the uh, the book here and see what we got. We open on Lookout Knob in Salem Center, where the X-Men are engaged in a snowball fight. And this is a snowball fight that lasts like a half dozen pages. Um, and I, I suppose it does a decent enough job of letting us know who we'll be focusing on for this holiday outing. Though, uh, you know, the X-Men baseball games are probably the better way to do this. But given the season, what are you going to do? Now we've got Thunderbird. That is the new Thunderbird, or the new new Thunderbird, if you will. Uh, this is kind of the big character of the Claremont return, Neil Shara. We're going to come to find out that he's a pretty good he's pretty good arm with a snowball, you know. Uh, he's teamed with Iceman and Nightcrawler, who's using an image inducer, um, which is a reminder of how often they used to use him in image inducers back in the day. I can't think of a time in recent stories where they're employed or employed quite as much. As a matter of fact, we're going to see Beast using one in, as well in just a few pages. Now, Iceman is kind of a gimme for a snowball fight, right? Even if they're playing with a no-powers rule, I mean, how are you going to prove it? Now, they're pitted against a team of Colossus, Angel, and Psylocke, the latter of whom really seems to have the hot pants for Mr. Neil Shara. She actually seems to have the just plain hot pants for a number of dudes during this issue. So, after a few pages of paffing each other with snowballs, our scene, and perhaps one of our X-Men, finally climaxes. Uh, Betsy somehow winds up on top of Thunderbird and is uh, straddling him pretty good. Uh, he reverses it and flips her over, and he's now straddling her. Uh, they're, they're basically dry-humping at this point. To which Bobby turns to Warren is li- and is like, Hey, bro, isn't that your girl? Uh, Warren shrugs it off, and he says Betsy can do whatever the hell she wants with whoever the hell she wants. Then, Rogue and Gambit saunter on up. Rogue warns Thunderbird that he's eking in on a woman who's already been spoken for. And he just blushes and states, for the record, that Betsy is a remarkable woman. Rogue suggests that she's never seen Betsy look at a man the way she looks at Neil. Which, I mean, it's kind of sad, isn't it? Imagine, the, the great love of your life is the third Thunderbird. The one that nobody except people like us can remember. Rogue repeats her warning, saying that uh, she can't stop them from doing whatever they're going to do which is probably just a no-pants version of their rolling around in the snow right now, she just says that uh, he ought to know that there are consequences to every action. Her lecture is then thankfully stopped by a splitting headache. And not ours, hers. She has a splitting headache. We might too, but 
we're not important. Now, you see, the thing here is Rogue's powers have been kind of on the fritz of late. Uh, she's involuntarily manifesting powers from ev- anyone she's ever touched. Whereas usually, except for Carol Danvers, uh, those lingering powers and memories appear to fade over time. Now, the only stolen mutant power that she has any control over is Snicked, the ability to pop a set of bone claws. This is Claremont, right? I mean, are we sure we're not reading Howard Mackey? Or did we did we accidentally pick up a, a, an issue of Mutant X or something? Uh, okay, let's keep going. <clears throat> The other X-Men tell Rogue to put her claws away, and uh, since they're hanging out with a bunch of locals who would probably prefer not to see them, you know, sticking out, Rogue doesn't care. Neil suggests that Rogue maybe see uh, if the Professor can help her, to which she's all, uh, duh, don't you think I tried that already? Idiot. Betsy pops over to try to squash the situation by asking if anyone would like to go for some hot cocoa. And so, a cocoaing we will go. Rogue talks a bunch about the odd evolution of her powers, and uh, oddly enough, she's just a few months short of being part of that Morrison secondary mutation wave. I'm pretty sure that before long, Rogue will actually be completely powerless for a spell. In fact, a handful of the folks we're going to be hanging out with today are just a few months away from some major and some fatal changes. Now, Betsy reflects back to a chat that she and Rogue had after Senator Kelly's wife died back in the long ago, if only to remind us that Senator Kelly himself just died. Neil compares his Hindu faith to Professor X's dream for probably no other reason than to remind us that he's Hindu, I think. This somehow facilitates Rogue sharing that Gambit went outside to speak with Rogue. Uh, this is really a hodgepodge of a scene here, uh, where, like, we had a place we needed to get to... But getting there was like jumping backwards through flaming hoops. Uh, so let's just let's just leave it and go to the Gambit and Storm scene, right? They're outside and they're ice skating. As are Beast and Trish Tilby. Uh, the former, of course, using an image inducer. And hell, I mean, for all I know, they both are. Now here's the thing. Storm wanted to have this particular chat with Gambit amid a big crowd. Because telepaths evidently do not like crowds. And what she has to discuss is something she'd prefer not get back to the professor. Now you see, recently it's been discovered that Destiny, Irene Adler, kept diaries. Thirteen of them, in fact. Uh, One probably talked about Krakoa being a thing that it is currently, unless she just didn't bother to write that one down. Maybe she just told Mystique about it. But some of these diaries are in hand. Professor X has a couple of them. I believe uh, Storm might have one of them. The rest of them are missing. And Storm feels like, in the wrong hands, such as, perhaps Xavier's, these diaries could cause everything to go sideways. Now, Hank takes great offense to the idea that Professor X would do anything untoward, to which Gambit reminds him that, you know, like just like a couple of years ago, that whole onslaught thing happened, so maybe let's, you know, let's pull Charlie off the pedestal here. Hank and Remy very nearly come to blows over this until Trish Tilby forces herself between them. Storm tells Hank to uh, consider this a way of actually helping the professor. Which, I mean, if we squint and tilt our heads sideways, kinda makes sense, maybe? I don't know. From here, we shift to a bunch of weird, weird one-page stories. Um, It's quite jarring and feels like a sort of desperate and inorganic way to tie off some loose ends. Very, very bizarre here. We're going to first go with Nightcrawler, who, 
for some reason as part of a trapeze act with Cerise. Okay, uh, well, the gimmick here is he's a priest, right? We know that. Well, it looks like Cerise is all you can have your faith or you can have me, but not both, which is kind of a dick move, isn't it? Now, Nightcrawler expresses that he loves Cerise, but to him, all of that love comes from God, so it's a no-go. From here, Nightcrawler will uh, become part of the Uncanny X-Men roster. He'll eventually find out that his father is Azizel the Demon, or the Devil, uh, and he will get tied up in a church that hands out explosive communion wafers. (sighs) Maybe he should have gone with Cerise, huh? Hmm. Our next scene features Colossus, who is also part of a circus. Is this even really happening, or are we just part of a communal hallucination at this point? I, I don't know. Anyway, he's dressed like a clown. Like, literally, he's got a painted face, you know, on. He's, he's a clown. And he's fighting off, like, clown versions of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Okay, and they're throwing pies at one another. A 16-ton weight like the kind you see in a cartoon, smashes into the stage, supposedly representing the bartender of the Green Lagoon, right? And the crowd applauds. Colossus looks into the audience, and since this is a solo Colossus scene, he mistakes a young blonde girl for his, at the time, still-dead sister, Ilyana. Because of course he did. This was basically Colossus's defining characteristic at this point, and for many years before. From here, Colossus would go on to become a part of the roster of Dead. Uh, He's just a month or so away from sacrificing himself to cure the legacy virus, and he'll be gone until the Buffy guy decides that he wants to slum it in comics closer to the middle of the decade, so we won't be seeing him for a little while. Our next little vignette uh, features Archangel and Psylocke, where they spend two pages breaking up. Betsy seems to want both Warren and Neil, But Warren ain't digging this uh, thruple vibe here. Uh, What a spoil sport, right? Hmm. Now, it's worth noting here that Warren's costume is perhaps the most heinous part of this quite horrid issue. They wish wish each other well and all that. Uh, From here, Warren would uh, join the Uncanny team, where he'll eventually deflower a teenager right in front of her parents. He'll also get a secondary mutation where his blood becomes like a cure-all. I guess this is before Elixir showed up to, to do the gimmick, right? Betsy will go on to join the roster of Dead. Um, Claremont will knock her off in the opening arc of his Extreme series, which this is all leading toward, fully intending to revive her not too long after, only to be told by the current brass of Jemis and Casada that, quote, Dead is dead, unless you're the Buffy guy slumming it in comics a handful of years later. Next vignette features Bishop, who spends a page punching a car. He delivers toys to a fire station in Brooklyn when some bank robbers come driving down the street, and so Bishop beats up their car. Uh, The firefighters realize that Bishop is probably a mutant, but hey, they like him just the same. Truly a Christmas miracle. Bishop would go on to join the extreme team and uh, straighten his hair. Next, Wolverine, and uh, I'm telling you, this feels so disjointed, doesn't it? We're just all over the place here. Uh, Wolverine is in Japan. He's at the gravesite of Mariko Yoshida. Probably since it is Christmas time, he's reflecting on that one Christmas where he almost killed Nightcrawler for kissing her on the cheek. He's soon joined by Viper, who was recently revealed as being Wolverine's wife, in another bordering on unreadable Claremont story. They chat for a bit before Viper hands over a box. In it is one of Wolverine's bone claws, one that belonged to Kitty Pride. Now Logan takes this as a sign that Kitty is okay. 
Okay, now this might warrant a little bit of explanation, and I will do my best. You see, this second Claremont run started with the X-Men dealing with a group called the Neo. They were advanced mutants, whatever the hell that means. Basically, if you look at it like, you know, what mutants are to humans as the next step, the Neo were to mutants as the further next step, right? They are the next step up from mutants. It's a decent enough concept, but honestly, how in the hell do you make it work in practice? We've already got mutants that are, you know, amazingly powerful. Omega levels. I don't, I don't think Omega level had been coined just yet, but you know what I mean. So what could possibly make the Neo special? The answer to that is quite simple. Nothing. They weren't special. They had regular mutant powers, but we were supposed to believe that they were more. I think one of them had the ability to, like, like lock people in buildings. Like, seriously. That was his gimmick. His power. And that was the next step up from mutants. I don't know. Well, it was alluded to that Kitty might actually be a Neo. Or was maybe switched at birth with one. Uh, something just as convoluted. Uh, Claremont never got the opportunity to follow up on this, uh, and so he just had Kitty vanish at the start of the run, and she was just gone. I, I think she was supposed to play a pretty huge role in the this second Claremont run, but she was gone really, really early. I mean, they even gave her like this all-new look, where she had like a, a spiky short haircut, a domino mask, and some gloves that had Wolverine's broken-off bone claws on them. So it's like they actually had big plans, for at least what you'd think. So, getting back to Viper's gift here, this bone claw might have been a message, right? It's still really weird. Uh, now, Kitty would remain limboed for a bit before resurfacing in a miniseries called Mechanics with an X, where we would see her in either college or grad school back in Chicago. From here, she'd hook up with the Extreme team, and uh, I don't think any connection between she and the Neo was ever clarified or confirmed from that point on. Now, Wolverine would join the new X-Men roster and uh, grow the most righteous of early 2000s facial hairstyles, the Soul Patch. Our next cameo or vignette or whatever it is is Rogue and Gambit, and they're walking through Salem Center. They come across a defaced nativity scene that was made with what looks like X-Men action figures. Out of respect for Senator Kelly, who came around to liking mutants before he died. <sighs> this is silly. Uh... <laughs> Whatever the case, it's covered with anti-mutant graffiti. According to the nearby kids, this was done by the same people who trashed a nearby menorah. You know, to really drive the point home to the slower among us. I swear, I gotta keep flipping back to the cover to make sure we're not reading like a Mutant X annual or something. This is, this is rotten. Uh, Rogue suddenly manifests Cyclops' optic blast, which she cannot control. And so she flies into the sky to, like, unload it in safety here, so she's not going to hurt nobody. The nearby kids who, you know, like two seconds ago loved mutants, well, they freak the F out. Now, this causes Gambit to comment how embracing those who are different in theory is one thing, but being faced with the realities of differences is quite another. Did, did we all survive the raining down of anvils? I sure hope so, because we're not done yet. Anyway, Rogue and Gambit would go on to be side players in the Extreme book, and they'll both be completely depowered for a bit. And so we finally, finally wrap up these, these vignettes, and we arrive at Xavier's, where everyone we just vignetted with, along with about 7,000 words and narration captions, are uh, gathered 
for the Christmas festivities. Um, they were all posing by the stairway with the professor, just to prove that they're all on the same side. After which, Storm pulls a handful of them aside so they could talk about seceding from the team. She lays out the mission statement for this new team, which is tracking down Destiny's diary. Which, uh, spoiler alert, is something that her new team will never actually endeavor to do. Now, her new extreme team will include Rogue, Beast, who only agrees to join up in order to keep Aurora honest, whatever that means. And what that does turn out to mean is not much, because uh, he will join Morrison's new X-Men team right away. He spends like three issues with the extreme team. Uh, we got Thunderbird the Third, got Psylocke, Bishop, and Gambit. Well, maybe not Gambit, because Rogue says he can't join. Why? Who knows? She says she doesn't want Remy to get hurt, which... I mean, aren't they all superheroes? Yeah, whatever. Wolverine pipes up to ask Storm why she didn't choose him, to which she says she'll need him at the home front. His mind is uh, apparently impossible for Xavier to read, even though I'm pretty sure it's not. He'll act, Wolverine that is, as a liaison between the extremes and the rest. This will go nowhere. Storm then introduces us to the other member of her team, Sage. Wolverine's all, hey, that's Tessa from the Hellfire Club. Just to remind us all that, yes, this is Tessa from the Hellfire Club. Storm assures him, and us, I suppose, that Sage is good people. What she doesn't warn us, however, is that Sage is terribly boring people as well. Sage is decked out in a, uh, like a bondage catsuit, by the way, which is perfect Christmas party attire. We jump ahead to the gift exchange. Ooh, this is exciting stuff. Beast gives Trish Tilby something special... That we don't get to see. Gambit gives Rogue something that makes her cry. That we don't get to see. Psylocke gives Neil something that makes him blush. That we don't get to see. I mean, I can only assume it's like a pair of her panties or something. I mean, what, what could it be? What, what would make him blush? I don't know. Professor X then gives Bishop a copy of Tale of Two Cities, which we do see, which I'm guessing is supposed to be seem far deeper than it actually comes across as. I don't know. Outside, Storm gets a gift from somebody. It's addressed, quote, to my Windrider. Gotcha. And it's a new costume, and uh, I'd really need a memory jog to remember who Aurora was romantically entangled with at this point. Um, maybe it's Forge, maybe it's Yukio. Who knows? We close out with Storm joined by Professor X outside, and they talk about the legacy of the X-Men. What Storm doesn't tell him that uh, is she's quitting, and she's taking a bunch of his most trusted X-Men with her. And we're out of here. Thus ends the second Claremont run. Oh boy, but the book itself is not done yet. Remember, this is a 100-page giant, and the stories that follow are the one in X-Men 98, followed by Uncanny X-Men 143, followed by Uncanny X-Men number 341. So if you want to hear all the discussion about that, you can check out the last three episodes. Just listen to them out of order. Again, this was not planned. <laughs> Because if it was, I would have only had to pull this one book. So I wouldn't have been digging and moving boxes and wrench, you know, wrenching my back trying to move uh, long boxes here. So the good news is if you guys want to follow along, all you got to do is pull this one issue. So it's good stuff. But uh, let's talk about it. You know, the first story here. We've already talked about the other three. Let's talk about the first story. And, uh, well, it was no good, was it? Um... It's really kind of like a shining example of any, everything that went wrong with the Claremont return. Um, it feels instantly dated. I remember back when I was reading this the first time around, it just felt so old-fashioned and not in a good way. 
Character motivations are sort of all over the place. It's one of those eras where I like to say, rather than throwing a single strand of spaghetti at the wall to see if it'll stick, they just threw the bowl. And the spaghetti already had sauce on it, right? So it's just it just left a mess. It was no good. I feel like, in fairness, Claremont was kind of stuck between two worlds here. He's trying to remain true to his old style, but adding like a turn-of-the-century sensibility to it, as if that makes any sense. His old style, which was really good. I mean, it worked for the lion's share of his initial, you know, 16-year run. Here, though, in an era where it's less cool to write comic books as though they're, you know, comic books, I feel like he was almost writing with something of a handicap. We've talked a lot about thought balloons uh, during this, uh, you know, Merry X last week here. There are none. And so all exposition had to come across as through forced and awkward dialogue. Also, Claremont's getting older, but he's still writing relatively young people, which leads to either some anachronistic lingo or poor and out-of-touch use of contemporary vernacular. Plus, he's really got this hot-on for uh, Thunderbird, who nobody cared about, ever, and nobody ever will. From what I've read about the shake-up at this point, Claremont was kind of given two options. He was told he could either stick with Uncanny X-Men, uh, giving up you know, X-Men Volume 2, but he would have to play along with Grant Morrison's new X-Men storylines. Or he can get his own third flagship series, kind of on its own, where he could do whatever the hell he wanted. We all know he chose the latter, and it was probably the best choice for him, but man, the road to get there is paved with awkward scenes, isn't it? I mean, the extreme book, stupid title and all, had a great concept. Uh, tracking down Destiny's diary sounds like a heck of a motivation and, and you know, a particularly fun MacGuffin hunt, right? You never know what we're going to find out. If they do find one of these diaries, we might find some really interesting predictions and theories. And it seems like a lot of stuff we could dig our teeth into. Only they never actually got around to doing the thing. And Extreme ran something like 50 to 60 issues if we include, you know, a couple of miniseries, one-shots, and the mechanics mini. Now, in order for this soft schism to make any sense, we have to buy into the fact that Storm no longer trusts Xavier. We also have to buy into the fact that Xavier is so out to lunch that he doesn't know what's going down right under his own nose. It's awkward, it's forced, and it feels a lot more cloak and dagger than it really needs to be. But, you know, they need that third monthly book, so by hook or by crook, they're going to do it, damn it. Uh, speaking of awkward, let's look at the pacing of this book here. We open with a snowball fight, which is fair enough. Seeing the X-Men engage in leisure activities is a Claremont hallmark, right? Unfortunately, this was all to build to Betsy and Neil dry-humping in the snow in front of Betsy's then-boyfriend. Maybe this is where Warren gets his exhibitionist tendencies, huh? Uh, we got Rogue, coping with her not-quite-secondary mutation, which, you know, would be an okay subplot if only she'd... I don't know, shut up about it? This is another failing of the No More Thought Balloons era, because we don't get to see Rogue struggling in her mind, and so instead she's forced to endless, endlessly kvetch every time she's on panel, and it's pretty brutal. And what's with this weird overprotectiveness of Gambit? I'm pretty sure he's still got his powers at this point, though he won't for long. Really just no good. Uh, those one-off vignette stories? <laughs> I swear I'm still not convinced they actually happened. I mean, why were we suddenly at a circus? How was Wolverine in Japan and in Xavier's at the same time? 
how many times did Warren commute from upstate to New York City to make these scenes work? How quickly can he fly? Why did we get a whole page devoted to Bishop punching a car? I get the feeling, and this is pure projection here, that before writing this script, maybe Claremont spent like six hours on the phone with Louise Simonson, who he'd asked to read his entire return, and make notes about all of his new dangling plots. And then with that list, he decided to wrap them all up here. Well, not counting the Neo, because ain't nobody got time for that. I know I'm probably being a little too hard on this issue, and this era, but I will say, given the circumstances, you know, the editorial upheaval, the creative shuffle, the character dibsing, you know, people calling dibs on certain characters, Claremont probably had to do whatever he could to make this work as both a send-off and a soft pilot to his upcoming series. It was what it was. Uh, I didn't really enjoy it, but what are you going to do? I suppose, like we've been doing with uh, several of these issues to this point, we could look at this as purely a Christmas issue, and, uh, well, it is a story that happens on Christmas. (laughs) It's just not a very good one. Uh, The art is also uneven. It doesn't really come across to me as anything more than passable. Um, There are multiple inkers credited here, which probably didn't help, and, as mentioned, a lot of editorial upheaval. Who knows where this was going to fit? Who knows how this was supposed to go? This whole package, it doesn't feel like an issue of X-Men. It feels more like a a story from X-Men Unlimited, which isn't a good thing. Overall, if you plan to read Extreme X-Men in its entirety, you'll probably want to start with this issue. Other than that, you don't need this in your life. There isn't a whole lot to dig here. Even as a Christmas issue, which I am a sucker for, there ain't much here. Um, This is uh, really just a rushed and forced ending to a return that should have been more than what it was. Uh, It's... It's kind of sad when you stop to think about it. Now, I don't know if Claremont would have eventually found his footing with this. Uh, I really don't know what the plans would have been had uh, Jemis and Casada not taken over when they did. I could only imagine that it would be more of the same and maybe worse. So that's about all I got to say about X-Men Volume 2, number 109. Now, if anybody has any thoughts they'd like to share about uh, the Claremont return or Christmas or X-Men or whatever you want to talk about, please feel free to reach out. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics or WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at Chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com. We've also got xlapsed.chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com. You can chat with us on Facebook in our little group, 90s X-Men. And uh, you can hear all the audio from the Chris and Reggie audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. I think that's where we'll put a pin in it for today. Just one more day to go in our Merry X-Lapsed excursion here. There will be a show on Christmas Day. So if you have a few moments to spare or if you're maybe stuck going to work or commuting, I'll I'll do my best to keep you company (laughs) as best I can. So uh, till then, uh, I want to thank everyone for uh, sharing their time with me, and uh, I will talk to you all again real soon. See ya. Inside your heart